Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by David Liddle. David is the CEO of the Total Conflict Management Group, an award-winning provider of negotiation, mediation, investigation and leadership development services and training to UK and global companies. David, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the uh, programme as well, uh, David. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, It has been a significantly dark and dense cloud over all of us throughout 2020 and posed probably one of the most significant challenges for leaders of our time. But for you and your business, just to what extent has it affected your operations? I think it's, I mean, it's had a, in terms of our organisation, it has a kind of profound effect. Um, you know, we provide conflict resolution and mediation services, and I guess on March the 23rd, as everyone was beginning to go and work from home, um, you know, there, there were less opportunity for conflicts and disputes and um, you know, less, less need for mediation. But things have changed really rapidly. Um, we've seen as organisations are struggling with the levels of stress and trauma that people have experienced during COVID, the, the move towards flexible working. Um, it's created a whole host of new challenges for managers and leaders and human resources professionals. I think people's expectations of what work means have been changing radically. I guess employees, those who've been furloughed and those who haven't, have been um, really demonstrating high levels of real commitment and loyalty to their employers through this. And I guess they've been looking for that to be paid back, but in a very new world. So it's been very disruptive, very challenging. And I guess one of the things that stood out for me is, you know, the you know every Thursday we were out clap, doing our clap, clap for carers um, uh, on our doorsteps. We saw a real move towards a more compassionate, humane, a sense of togetherness. And I think that's set some real challenges for business leaders to harness that feeling of a more together, community-oriented, community-focused, society and I think that's some real challenges for, for leaders and for, for our organisation as well. It certainly has, hasn't it? And um, with regards to sort of adapting to this new reality, would you say that there's anything that this whole experience has taught you in your leadership capacity? I think it has. I think the, the first thing is the importance of, of really listening. You know, we, we work with organisations to help have those big conversations, but of course we do that often when there's a conflict or a dispute and we help people listen to each other through mediation. But they need to be heard and need to listen um, as, as employees and being heard by our managers and leaders is, is more important now than, than, than ever, having our voice heard and feeling engaged. So one of the biggest challenges I think that faces leaders is how do they engage with, how do they listen to, and how do they create an opportunity of a voice for their employees, for their customers and stakeholders. And the, business, the successful businesses, the businesses that will thrive through this, are those businesses who are able to listen to listen carefully and listen deeply and then adapt their business models based on the information that they're getting. So one of the biggest challenges is communication. And at the heart of that, I think, Scott, is is the ability to listen and really hear what's being said. Mm, absolutely right. And if we think about um, essentially what the future will hold in the long term for your industry in particular, I mean, what do you see as being the long term consequences of this pandemic? 
Well, we've seen a massive increase in the use of our mediation services recently. Um, I, 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 I describe it as the sort of the ABC of running organisations. You know, it's the austerity, Brexit, COVID, and what we're saying to business leaders is don't let disputes be the D which drags you down. But we're seeing a real rise in conflicts and disputes within workplace, and what I call zombie conflicts that didn't go away just because we went into lockdown in March. And actually, what we're seeing is through the Zoom calls, the video conferencing, and the interactions between people in the workplace is some of those conflicts didn't go away and they are rising to the surface quickly and in quite a dramatic fashion. So I think some of the, for us as a, as a company who provides mediation support, we're seeing a real uptick in the use of mediation. But we are seeing attitudes in organizations changing. You know, mm. People used to think, Scott, this, we were medication or meditation. And people confused, what is mediation? But what we're starting to see from leaders and, 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 and from human resources and managers is a real emphasis on the importance place of, of having dialogue and resolving issues constructively and collaboratively when they happen. And if we just touch on sort of leadership in a little bit more of a broader sense now, of course, yeah. your speciality is in mediation, is in conflict resolution. And as human beings, we're not infallible. Conflict in the workplace is sometimes inevitability. So how is it that you go about sort of dealing with that as and when it does arise? That's a great question. I mean, I, I would go as far as to say conflict is an inevitable and unavoidable fact of life. In fact, I would say organizations that don't experience conflict are perhaps some of the unhealthiest organizations that I've, I've observed. So conflict is a, is a natural expression of, of, of relationships in the workplace. I think when I mediate or when my team goes to mediate, it often occurs to us and to the parties in the case that had a manager or a leader done something at an earlier stage, maybe listened to the parties, had the courage to bring them together, had the confidence to create a space for the parties to engage in a dialogue, they may not have needed to have someone coming from outside of the organization. So when I look at leadership and management, I ask myself some really, really simple questions, and I pose these to leaders and managers. How do you go about creating a safe space for people to come together and resolve their differences? How do you ensure that you demonstrate empathy and objectivity when you're dealing with issues? How do you allow people to speak openly and create psychological safety in your workplace so people can disagree with each other but disagree with each other in a respectful and supportive way and what managers tell me and this is where i think it becomes really interesting is when managers create the space for managing conflict effectively and they put the parties in a room and they give them the opportunity to have the conversation they will seek outcomes and, and, and create solutions which are deeply innovative and creative and out of conflict comes creativity and out of division comes innovation. So again, the successful organizations of the future are the organizations, I believe, Scott, those organizations that can harness the power of disagreements and diversity and diverse thinking. And where our managers and leaders don't treat that as an organizational risk. You know, we see so much risk aversion in our organizations. You know, we have a policy for every bad behavior that an employee could demonstrate. And I find that deeply inhibits the ability for our employees and for our other sort of, you know, customers and key stakeholders to come together and have conversations. So for me, it's moving from helping leaders move from policy, process, and procedure to dialogue, to positive engagement, to flow, to helping the parties have those creative and innovative conversations. And if we just think about sort of the fact that you've been at the forefront of conflict resolution for the last 25 years, of course, 
you've been in business for yourself for quite a long time, uh, David. Um, what was yeah. it that sort of inspired you to sort of go your own way with that and start your own businesses with the aim of resolving conflict in this way? Well, I've always, I've always been a real passionate advocate of, of giving individuals a real participatory sort of leadership and management style. My degree, my first degree was in race and community relations, and I worked in Leicester up in the East Midlands, lovely part of the world, helping neighbours at war resolve their differences and disagreements. I then studied in, um, my MBA at uh, De Montfort University in Leicester, at the same time as I was awarded two contracts in London at Croydon and Hounslow to set up in-house workplace mediation schemes. So I had the chance to write those up. And I was awarded a distinction in my MBA. And I guess the MBA was the, the, the point where I thought, hang on, I can do this. So you know, I was, again, very intrigued by Japanese management systems, got total quality management. But I was looking at what was coming out of Harvard and Cornell at the time, you know, integrated conflict management systems. So I came, I could have called myself Happy Workplaces Limited, or, and I came up with a mouthful, Total Conflict Management. But it was a hybrid of TQM, Total Quality Management, holistic approaches for dealing with issues in the workplace, taking a systemic and whole systems view, engaging everyone in decision uh, decision making. It was almost like the pre the, the predecessor to, to agile thinking. You know, fail fast, get the decisions made. You know, look at a really effective supply chain system. So I looked at how we could apply that in conflict management. So it became a systemic factor, not a an a, a addendum to the organisation. And I married that with integrated conflict management systems mm. and came up with total conflict management. So it sounds like a bit of a mouthful, but it was about recognising that conflict management isn't just a mediator parachuting in when the, when the problem happens. That conflict management is a key strategic priority within organisations. And the organisations who are successful at handling conflict, to me, are the successful organisations of the future. Exactly right. And thinking about the future, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, we know that with COVID-19 still looming large, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. But what is next for you and for the TCM group over this period of time? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by this time next year? We're we're on a mission to rid organisations of the dreaded discipline and grievance procedures start. So we work with organizations to repurpose their human resources processes. Those policy frameworks are an inhibitor of, of, of successful businesses. They, they rip relationships apart. They create stress. They undermine innovation. They're pernicious, damaging, divisive. And actually, they only act as a tool of risk management, not as a tool of good people management. So one of my objectives through COVID and beyond is to help organizations create resolution frameworks where rather than focusing on mitigating risk, they focus on resolving issues. And that then takes us into the boardroom and across the management function of helping leaders to really embrace difficult uh, challenges within the workplace, to listen carefully and actively, to create conditions for dialogue, to introduce processes such as positive psychology, flow across their business, creating happier, healthier, and more harmonious workforces. And of course, it's those workforces that are happier, healthier and more harmonious that are also higher performers um they're, they're more effective their performance goes up and they deliver a better outcome to their to their customers so working with leaders to develop the school the skills the, the capacity and the tools to create a happier healthier and more harmonious workforce to remove the reliance on risk averse policies and pre- procedures and to ensure that managers are able to understand and meet the needs of their employees rather than 
the, the system of management through, in essence, telling is helping managers to show the way. I'm, a, I'm really inspired by servant leadership models, helping managers to lead from behind rather than lead from the front by understanding the needs of employees. So there's a sort of, I guess the, the, the other part of, of our work and something that really inspired me is bringing the values down off the lobby wall and bringing them off the lanyards around our neck mm-hmm. and actually making them a real part of how the organization thinks and functions. So building them into management competencies and behavior frameworks and human resources policies and making the value a living, breathing, golden thread upon which every other part of the organization functions. Mm, sounds like a lot so of an ambitious agenda, Scott. Mm, certainly so. Very ambitious over the uh, the next uh, 12 months for sure. But I'll certainly be keeping um, a close eye on how things are getting on in that respect. And I actually think it would be wonderful just in light of how um, intriguing it's been having you join us on the programme today, just to catch up at some point in this next year, David, and welcome you back onto the show, just to see how some of those ambitions are being borne out. I would absolutely relish that opportunity to share some of that with you and, and maybe even share some case studies and some examples of organisations who are, who are who are approaching management and leadership in the way that, that I've been talking about for that. It would be wonderful to uh, do just that. Of course, chronicling the realities of British leadership is everything that the Leaders' Council stands for. Um, it would be a real pleasure to welcome you back on in future, David. And most importantly as well, until we do touch base again in future, hopefully, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well. Absolutely, Scott, and and you too, and also to all of the listeners to to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. I would reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Do please continue to look after yourselves and do be considerate of others as well, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome David Little, CEO of Total Conflict Management Group, onto today's podcast. Coming up next on the programme today, it's time for our exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals during his professional football career for clubs which included West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition. And that came, of course, after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That will be coming up right next, where Sir Jeff will be reflecting on some of the highlights of his career, some of the important leadership figures throughout his life, and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing so, so much work over the last few months during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and 
goodness me, yeah, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks. Uh, uh, making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, Ron Green was passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true when in, in those uh, medieval days you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play you um, in our road in Greenway as it was called in Chelmsford 
we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close together. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a three balls play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves doesn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.